I want you to turn over in your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 4. We're back in our, into our study in Philippians. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, we've been um, talking about uh, stability in our Christian lives. And, and um, you know, there's probably no greater need for stability in someone's spiritual life anyway than at the time of death. If you stop and you think about it, uh, death is a difficult thing to face. But if you're not on sound spiritual ground, um, I can't imagine facing death. I just can't imagine it. Laying there, realizing you're going about to die, not knowing the condition of your own soul, not having that security in the Lord. Um, I don't know. I, I it, it would just be a hard thing to face. I can't even imagine that. Um, but. Spiritual stability is really Paul's topic here as he's going through the, the fourth chapter. And we're studying in the fourth chapter about spiritual stability, and we've been looking at it for several weeks. We've been asking the question, how can we be spiritually strong? What makes a spiritually strong Christian? What does it take in those trying times, in those times when it seems like everything is going against you, in those times of great temptation, in those times of great trial, uh, even persecution sometimes, or times of great loss in our families. Um, there's times when we face confusion in our lives, not knowing what decision to make, times of distress and illness, whatever it may be. Um, how can we be spiritually strong through those times? That's kind of what Paul wants to share with us, and that's what he's sharing with us in chapter 4. How can we have the stability that looks death right in the eye and doesn't flinch, doesn't waver, doesn't doubt? How can we have that kind of calm, that kind of uh, contentment, you might say, that kind of peace in the midst of very difficult times that you may be facing? I think everyone here who's a believer hungers for that. We hunger for that stability. None of us have arrived. None of us can say, oh, that's me, the rock. You know, I never flinch. I... We all fail. We all sin. We all fall short of God's glory. But I think as believers, we should hunger for that stability in our lives that allows us to, yeah, maybe go up and down on a couple ways, but for the most part, we know where we're going and we know the direction and the plan and the purpose that God has for us. Because we know Him and we know His Word. We don't need to read a book to find out God's purpose for our life. It's very clear in the Word of God. To give Him glory. To live a life that's honoring Christ. But how can we get that kind of stability? Well, I just want to kind of review a little bit today. We're not going to get through the whole outline today just because it's, for, it's part of that's for next week. But we're going to cover the first point. But in way of review, I just want you to... Remember Paul's point here in verse 1, because he really starts off chapter 4 with the key phrase of this whole chapter. If you want stability in your Christian life, you have to what? He says at the end there, stand fast or stand firm in the Lord. And then he goes on and he gives us basically seven ways that we can do that, that we can have a steadfast Christian walk, not blown around like the waves of the sea. He wants the Philippians here to be strong. He wants them to be rooted. He wants them to be grounded. 
He wants them to act like men, not babies. He wants them to be courageous and bold and strong and to stand for the Lord. And I think, frankly, sometimes when I look at believers today and I look at churches in general, we don't have that kind of stability in our churches. Not just this church, any church. There's not a, a whole lot of stability in people's lives. They'll hear some new doctrine and boy, they'll, they'll just flock to it. And sometimes that's, that's frustrating in a way because you're thinking, aren't you growing in your walk with the Lord? Aren't you growing more stable each day? That's what the Christian walk is all about. And so when he says here, stand firm, uh, then he goes on and he says, here's how you're going to do it. And the first one, in way of review, the first thing that is required for spiritual stability is to be in an environment of peace or an environment of love and fellowship. You're to be a peacemaker. That's what he says there in verse 2. He, he covers two ladies, Yodi and Syntyche, and he says, hey, you know what, they're having a problem. They're having a disagreement in the church, and it's causing disruption in the whole church. Now remember, Paul is reading, or Paul wrote this letter, and they're standing up in the Philippian church, and they're reading this letter to the congregation from the Apostle Paul. And this disagreement must have been so severe, we don't know what it was about, it doesn't say, but it must have been so severe that it was causing problems in the church. It was cultivating not peace, but disharmony and disunity. And you can actually even picture these women sitting there, oh great, you know, the, the last part of Paul's letter, and you know, they're sitting there very piously, and therefore my beloved and long for brethren, oh that's us, you won't, oh yes it is Sintik, you know, my joy and my crown, oh he's speaking of us. So stand firm in the Lord, beloved. They're probably sitting there very pious. And then the next word, I implore Euodia and I implore Sintik to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, and we talked about that, how that's probably an individual. That's probably somebody within the church. And he's telling them, because obviously somebody else wasn't doing their job there, to come alongside these women and get their act together. These weren't ladies that just did nothing but sit around and gossip. Paul says that they labored with him in the gospel. So they were with Paul at one point, working with him in the gospel. But they had a disagreement. They were causing disharmony in the body. And he says, if you want to have a stable life, you need to have the same mind. You have to have the same mind as Christ, the same mind as other believers. And you have to be a peacemaker. You have to have the kind of attitude that's not, you don't bring criticism to the table, but you bring suggestions, you bring help. That helps. Who wants to sit and listen to somebody whine all day about a problem they're facing? Nobody wants to do that. And so he wants them to kind of get on the same page with each other. Basically, what he's saying is get your act together, you two. And you know what? Put aside this division, this, this, this discord and chaos and, and disunity. It's just dividing the church. And if you think that your little division won't affect the whole church, you're wrong. It does. It de destabilizes people all around you. 
And we went into detail on all of that when we covered that. That's the first thing. To make sure that you're in an environment of peace and that you're being a peacemaker in that environment. Secondly, we talked about maintaining a spirit of joy. And that's what he says in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always again. I say rejoice. And this joy that we talked about here was not based on your circumstances. If we went through a week based on our circumstances, man, I, I think we, any of this would probably be anything but joyful. You know, the world just eats us up out there sometimes. It's crazy. And so you don't base your joy in the Lord on your circumstances. You do just what he says. Rejoice always in the Lord. And we talked about what that means to rejoice in the Lord. In other words, our joy is because of our privileged, permanent union with the God of gods, the Creator God. He transcends all circumstances and difficulties and trials and temptations and persecutions, whatever you're facing. God is bigger than that. And you're, you're brought together with Him through Christ in a relationship. And so spiritual stability comes to those who are experiencing peace and love and a, and a fellowship. It also comes to those who are maintaining a spirit of joy no matter what difficulty they're facing. And that's not always easy to do. But that's what we're commanded to do. Thirdly, he goes on and he says spiritual stability really requires to accept less than you deserve. Learning to accept less than you are due. Look at what he says in verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. Or let your forbearing spirit, some translations read, be made known to all men. What's that mean? It's talking of contentment. It's talking of, of your humble graciousness to someone. It's the idea that, that you walk into a room and you don't expect anything from anybody. That's the idea behind the word. How many times do you, maybe you go to a Christmas party or something and you walk away and on the way home, so-and-so didn't even come over and say hi to me, I can't believe, and you start, start, you know, well, who cares? You know what, you walk in the room and everybody bow down and, you know, come over and kiss your ring or something, I mean, that's crazy. But a lot of times that's our attitude, that's our idea, because we think we're somebody, you know, we need to be respected and, and, and we demand all this. Well, this, this idea here, let your forbearing spirit be made known to all men, means that, you know what, you're content with just what you are and nothing more. You don't expect anything. And if you do expect anything, you're basically showing your own sinfulness. It's really the essence of humility. It's the essence of modeling what Christ was. You know, all of us have probably a higher view of ourselves than we ought most of the time because we live in a world that tells us oh you know you're number one you're somebody your self-esteem all this stuff I mean we have to stop and think you know what everything we have the eyes we see with the ears we hear with the, the, the mind we think with all those abilities they're given to us by the grace of God there's no reason why you know, we should have any of that. It's all because of His grace. How do you act when you're mistreated? When you're rejected, when you're persecuted? 
say few of us probably think, well, I'm an unworthy sinner anyway, so they're just treating me for what it's worth. We should always be grateful to the grace of God, which is ours in Christ, and not expect anything beyond that. And that's a goal, once again. No, nobody here is saying, oh, we've arrived at that. That's a goal that Paul says, if you want stability in your life, work on these areas. Fourthly, he goes on, and the last time we talked about this, in some detail, spiritual stability demands resting in the confident faith in the Lord. It demands resting in the confident faith of the Lord. It says there at the end of verse 5, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Verse 6 says, be anxious for nothing. It's almost in a sequence. And we're talking here about, in the sense of space, we're not talking about in the sense of time. We're talking about the sense of space. I mean, obviously the Lord is nearer than he was when he wrote this as far as time goes, with his second coming and all that. But I don't think that's a priority here. I think he's talking about the nearness of his presence. And because the Lord is so near to us, we, we shouldn't be anxious for anything. I mean, think about it. If Jesus Christ came down and walked with you side by side and held your hand the whole day, the very God of the universe, the one that is the risen Lord, personally came down and spent a day with you at work and said, you know what? Started off the day. Don't worry, but I'm going to take care of everything for you today. When you got to work and the boss was upset, you know what? You probably look at Jesus and you'd probably say, hey, you know, it's okay, it's going to be okay. Even if he was there, you'd probably be still prone to worry a little bit. But it's speaking here, the Lord is near in terms of presence. And so this spiritual stability is, is really based upon the confident faith that we have in the Lord, in God himself, in Jesus Christ. That's the bottom line. Bottom line is when you handle, the way you handle your problems, your temptations, your trials, your difficulties, all of those things are a re reflection of your view of your God. If you're running around like a worry, wor worrying about everything under the sun, I'd have to look at you and say, your God must be pretty small. Because you don't think he can take care of anything for you. But if you understand that the, who the Lord is and, and you know, uh, his power and his grace and all that, his promises to us and the vast resources that he makes available to us in his purpose and plan, and understand that he has purposes and plans for you not to harm you, but to give you hope and a future, what in the world are we anxious about? You know what it boils down to? It boils down to if you understand that God is sovereign, if you understand that God is loving, if you understand that God is in control of everything in your life, and it's for His glory and your good, if you understand that nothing happens to you outside of, of God's control, not one thing, if you understand that he's orchestrating everything for eternal purposes, then you can sit back and you can rest in that confident faith. And you know what? You're going to have a stability even through the most serious of times in your spiritual life. 
I've seen people in different situations, a lot of times pretty traumatic situations. And I cannot tell you the difference. I mean, it's so, so vastly different when you're dealing with someone who knows Christ than when you're dealing with somebody who doesn't. It's just, it's just like night and day. Been in accident scenes where down in India one time a, a little child was run over by a vehicle and killed, two, three years old. You had to deal with the, the family and their grief. But you know what? Them being a believer, their family a believer, they totally understood when I said, you know what, that, that baby is with the Lord. That child is with the Lord. And they could honestly say, you know what? God is in control of this. We don't understand this. Our hearts are grieving tremendously. But you know what? We, we still believe that God is in control here. God has a purpose in everything. And we must learn to stop and see the Lord's purpose in our lives when those difficult times come. In Psalm 31, the psalmist really extols God as a strong protector and he emphasizes this throughout the Psalms. But in Psalm 31, he writes this, In thee, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In thy righteousness deliver me. Incline thy ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be thou to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For thou art my rock and my fortress. For thy name's sake, thou wilt lead me and guide me. Thou wilt pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For thou art my strength, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Thou hast ransomed me, O Lord God of truth. What he's saying there in the end is basically, you know what, you're true to what you say, God, and I'm going to trust in you with all my heart, no matter what comes. And that confident faith is the bottom line in your ability to deal with difficulty in your spiritual walk. When people have difficulties that can't be solved, when they get into problems that debilitate them and raise their anxiety level and cause all kinds of personal trauma, I don't always believe that the right answer is, well, you know what, you need to go and you need to talk to someone about your problem. I don't think that's the right answer. See, the right answer is, you need to get a better understanding of God and who is sovereign over your problem. That's the answer. Talking about your problem is not going to do you any good. It's, it's really a fallacy to, to assume that there's some kind of careful human analysis of the problem that's going to provide the perfect solution for it. See, the solution is to understand that, first of all, I'm a fallen person. I'm a sinful person, and I live in a fallen world. I live in a sinful world. It's cursed, and I bear the mark of, of that curse in my own flesh every day. This is what's to be expected. But you know what? I'm going to rest confidently in the faith that I have in my God and that He's sovereign over all this fallenness around me and all its effects on me. And he's powerful enough to affect his own eternal purposes in me despite of the world around me. See, that's the, the solution to the problem. It's that perspective, that adequate knowledge of God that's essential 
in a matter of spiritual stability. The scripture is the revelation of God so that in knowing the scripture, we know who? We know God. That's why he gave us his word. In knowing God, we can predict how he is acting. We can predict what his purposes are. And we can sit back and we can find contentment in that. In fact, even in Ephesians, when the believer gets into an intense spiritual battle with the forces of the enemies and spiritual wickedness, it says, and heavenlies and principal powers, principalities and powers, the idea is there that we're in hand-to-hand -hand battle with demons. And it says this, that our feet are shod with what? The preparation of the gospel of peace. The feet of a Roman soldier had to be prepared with something and they wore kind of a, a boot and this boot was, was leather and, and there were nails that were driven through it from the inside and those nails would grip the ground almost like a, a football cleat or a baseball track shoe, something like that. And when you were in com, uh, combat, hand-to-hand -hand combat, it was for life or death. It wasn't just a game. So they needed stability in their footing. And so they had these boots and they were able to anchor into the soil so they wouldn't slip and they wouldn't slide. And thus they had uh, less vulnerability to their enemy. And so you know, what Paul is saying is, is what makes you stand firm, what anchors your feet in the gospel of peace. What's he mean by that? He means that you're a participant in the good news. You believe the gospel. You, you understand that you have peace with God through Christ. Another way to say that is that, you know what? You understand that God is on your side. There's only two sides to the war. Either you're on God's side or you're on the enemy's side, which is the devil. One or the other. There's no gray area. And what anchors you in the battle is you're confident that you're on God's side. I mean, I read the end of the book, beloved, we win. That's a good thing. That's a positive thing. We should, we should have faith in our God that he's perfectly capable to carry out his purposes to the end. And we're anchored in this spiritual battle by the confidence that I'm at peace with God who's over all this. And therefore, God is at peace with me. And God is on my side and he's my defender. The psalmist says there, my rock, my strong defender. That's stability. You, know, you can have the greatest quarterback in the world, but unless he has a defense team around him, he's not going to have time to get the ball off. You, could, you, know, you can't just put the best quarterback out there with no line to defend him. Say, this should be interesting. He get knocked on his can every time. But it's when he has a strong defense around him, then he's able to execute the plays. And we have to believe that, you know what, God is our defender. And he's a strong defender. He's not some guy that they just, you know, got off the bench, third string, here, here, do your best. That's where our stability should come from. You're stable in any situation if you understand that you're God and you understand 
you understand your God and you understand his sovereign control and his sovereign purposes and his great omnipotence over everything that affects your life. See, the problem today in Christianity is this, and I don't want to make a big theological issue out of this, but I think it, it needs mentioning. I think one of the, the problems in our Christian culture today is that there's a strong reflection on a certain man-centered theology. And basically throughout the years in theology, there's been two schools of thought. There's been a God-centered theology and there's been a man-centered theology. There's a theology out there that believes that man is pretty much sovereign. He's the one that calls the shots. On the other end of the opposite pole is there's the thinking that, well, wait a minute, no. Who am I to call the shots? God is sovereign. And this argument has been around for years. And so the primary difference between those two schools of thought is basically one believes man is sovereign and the other one believes God is sovereign. That's the primary difference. And it's very subtly creeping into the church that somehow man is sovereign. The traditional reformed theological view that God is sovereign is kind of falling by the wayside. I mean, they believe that God is hopeful, they believe God is helpful, but they believe that man is sovereign. And it comes out, it fleshes itself out in this manner. They believe that somehow speaking of salvation, that you've got to find it within yourself to come to Christ. Somehow, you've got to find it within yourself not only to come to Christ, but you've got to find it within yourself to stay with Christ. Not only that, but you've got to find it within yourself to somehow accomplish your spiritual goals and to win your spiritual victories with the knowledge that God is hopeful and that God is helpful. And because He'd like to see you in heaven one day, if you could work it out to be there. And given the right conditions on your part, he'll come along and give you whatever assistance you need, but it's up to you, because you're the one that's in control, you're the one that's calling the shots. I don't know, I read my Bible, I just don't see that in Scripture anywhere. So what happens with that kind of theology? Well, the first thing that happens is that a man may profess Christ. They think himself to be a Christian because someone said, well, you need to pray this prayer, so they pray the prayer. So they think they're a Christian. But they've never really experienced any shattering confidence within themselves. They've never been humbled because of their own sinfulness. They've never, you know, understood the true just ineptability within themselves to save themselves because somebody told them, well, if you do this one thing, then you'll be saved. If you pray this prayer, if you, if you accept Jesus, if you, whatever, it's a cheapening of the gospel. And you hear it all the time. Come down front and say a prayer. Raise your hand. Do all these things. You know, do jumping jacks, whatever. None of that has anything to do with coming to Christ. 
But a person who believes that it's a man-centered salvation believes that salvation is something that he chooses to do on his own. And what happens after he's saved? He sits back and says, look at what I did. And you hear it all the time. You hear it in people's testimonies. Yeah, I lived this life. Then finally, I had the sense to come to Christ. You had the sense? You had the understanding that you should just, you just woke up one day and said, oh, I need to commit my life to Christ. You came up with that idea on your own? So what happens? You have these people that are professing Christians, but they've never experienced any kind of a shattering of their own pride and their own confidence. They even believe that they have the power to choose salvation. And if they believe they have the power to choose salvation, guess what they believe? They believe that they have the power to unchoose salvation. I mean, can you imagine facing death, lying on your bed, the doctor saying, okay, you're probably going to die tonight. And you lay there wondering if you've done enough, if you've done enough to be saved in light of your sin. So in your mind, you probably have these scales. Let's see, my sin, my good works. What kind of stability is that? Can you imagine battling in your heart that feeling that you might be saved or you might not be saved if you've committed this too many sins or you may be disqualified, whatever? I mean, there sure is a lot of security in that, isn't there? I think there's a lot more anxiety in that. See, unfortunately, they've never come to their, their wit's end. Because they believe that somehow deep inside they still have something that helps them get saved. Even if it's simply choosing. And so they really never totally understand what it means to totally, totally trust God. Because they believe that God is hopeful and helpful rather than sovereign. Consequently, their lives are filled with anxiety. They don't understand the sovereign God. Therefore, they don't understand the sovereign grace. Therefore, they don't understand the total divine working power of the eternal God on His behalf. They don't understand what it was that He was chosen by God, that He was redeemed by God, that He's kept by God, and that He'll be glorified by God. And that every trial we face in our lives is somehow under God's sovereign control. See, we have to stop and we have to remember who our God is. If you don't understand that God is sovereign, if you don't understand that God oversees all this, there's no way we're going to be able to look at how we can be anxious for nothing. I mean, can you imagine not having spiritual stability in the area of your own salvation, security of your own salvation? And I'm not talking about a, a cheapening of the gospel. 
that says, oh, you know, people say, oh, once saved, always saved. I don't believe that. I'm talking about a perseverance of the saints, which is very scriptural. That's what the Bible says. So if you're going to be stable in tough times, we better have a proper view of who God is. We've got to trust in a sovereign God, a God of grace, a God of power. We need to understand who he is. Spurgeon once said this, If you believe that everything turns on the free will of man, you will naturally have man as the principal figure in your landscape. That's true. See, now you're really stuck with a dilemma because you know that weak man is, how weak man is and you know how fickle man is. So why would you want him in control of anything? I think people with the right theological viewpoints shouldn't have these anxiety problems to, the, to that extent. I mean, we believe in a sovereign God. We believe in a God that's over all of our, our trials, our tribulations, everything. And see, the problem is, is that theology even works its way deeper into churches to the point that where, where they give man undue power. I mean, if you have power to choose your own salvation and save yourself, well, then what's the big deal about, you know, binding Satan? After all, you're in control. I mean, you ever stop and think about that? It's just silly. People praying, binding Satan, binding demons. What are they doing? So, I mean, when they, when they pray... You know, I bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus Christ. Does that mean Satan literally goes, oh, can't do anything. I'm bound. Does somebody come along and say, well, now you're unbound. Okay, now I can work. It's, it's just ridiculous. It's toilet theology. That's what I call it. You have people running around. I, I, I bind you, Satan. I command Satan. I, they have an improper view of who Satan is. You see it on the television all the time. You hear it on Christian radio all the time. Two things about Satan. You know what? First of all, Satan doesn't listen to you. Do you understand that? Satan does not listen to you. Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? You don't have the power to tell him to do one thing. Why in the world would he do it anyway? If you think about it. Most of us can't even get our own kids to obey us. And we think we're going to go command Satan? Hello? Some of you are saying, well, no, we won't go there. See, the Bible says that even Michael the archangel in the book of Jude wouldn't bring an accusation against Satan. Now, we're talking about an angelic being that just may be a little more powerful than we are. That was territory he didn't even belong in. And you see, that comes out in this theology that says man is powerful. Man is his own, you know, the, the, his own destiny and all this stuff. I mean, personally, I've got nothing to say to demons. I've got nothing to say to Satan. And if you look through the Bible in the New Testament, you know, there's no illustration really that, that anybody ever talked to Satan. If you really honestly look at it. Nobody's going around the New Testament, Satan, get away. Oh, we, might, we do this, we do that. I command you. It's crazy.
Furthermore, I think if you believe in that kind of theology, it tells me another thing. It tells me that you must be a pretty very, very powerful individual. Because the Bible says the one who does have control over Satan is who? God. <laughs> and if you're running around taking over for him, I think you got a little bit of an exalted view of yourself. I think that, that God is perfectly capable to deal with Satan and all the demons, and we just need to focus our hearts and our minds on who God is and get to know him better. I mean, if you've got to complain against the powers of darkness, then go to the one who's over all the powers of darkness, and that's our living God. And it's, it's just basically weak theology. And I think that we need to, to look at that strongly and not buy into that. Well, he finally comes to verse 6. And you're saying, what was all that about? I said, I don't know. But we've talked about these virtues here. Peace, love, joy, humility, faith. All that adds to our stability. Well, the next one in the list there is basically reacting to problems with thankful prayer. Reacting to your problems with thankful prayer. Why would you do that? Because God is sovereign. Okay, that's kind of my excuse why I just went through that litany of stuff that I just shared with you. It says in verse 6, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Now, this isn't a, a section of scripture that deals with the theology of prayer. That's not his point. He's basically emphasizing the importance of prayer and the attitude of prayer. Not getting into all the theological issues of prayer. Now, there's three different words here used for prayer, and they're translated prayer, supplication, and uh, request, depending on where you're, what translation you're using. Um, they all have to do with peti petitions and with the assumption that that you you kind of you're going to get into a problem and you're going to cry out to God. That's that's the purpose. I mean, it's natural, right? I mean, when you get into a problem. Hopefully you cry out to God. I know I do. But what Paul is, is saying here, instead of crying out to God in your difficulty with doubt and questionings and dissatisfaction and all that, cry out to God with what attitude? Thanksgiving. You say, why? Well, because you know that he's the God of promise who has promised that nothing's ever going to come into your life that's too much for you to bear. That he is the God of promise who's working all things together for your good. Turn over to Philippians 5.10. He's the God of promise who is causing you to suffer a while. First Peter, or, I'm, I'm sorry, what did I say? First uh, Peter 5.10, sorry. Some of you were turning, that's scary. <laughs> okay. First Peter five ten. Look at what he says here. But may the God of all grace, who called us 
to his eternal glory by, Jesus, by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while. In other words, that's just part of the plan. See, this, this pie-in-the-sky Christianity that, that says, oh, you know, you're going to get saved and health, wealth, and all that stuff. No, you know what? As believers, we're called to what? We're called to suffer. We're called to understand the sufferings of Christ. That's what he says there. After you've suffered a while, in other words, that's just part of the plan, Perf uh, for a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. That's what the, the, the God of all grace will do through these trials that you're going through. In other words, you know what? You're going to see difficulty in all God's purpose for you. And you know what? We want to thank Him for that. Why? Because it's going to make us stable. It's going to make us perfect, mature. It's going to strengthen us in our walk. And God will never violate that promise. I mean, that's, that's why, just stay there in 1 Peter 5. Jump back to verse 7. I mean, verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Doesn't sound like man's in control here. That he may exalt you in due time. And then look at what it says in verse 7. Casting all your care upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. See, when you pray and you supplicate and you request to God in the process of doing all that, we're to do it with thanksgiving. We're to do it with a, a thankful heart for His purposes, for His providence, thankfulness for His power, thankfulness for His promises that He's made, for His perfecting work in our lives. We want to have a thankfulness for the, the, the hope of relief that our sins are forgiven, a thankfulness for the hope of glory that He promises. A thankfulness that we're in His will. We should be thankful that He's doing exactly what He wants to do. The way He wants to do it. And He's going to accomplish everything He wants to in your life. See, prayer should always be thankfulness. Sometimes, you know, you, you go to a prayer meeting, man, it's depressing. It's just depressing. A lot of times, first thing we do with the prayer meeting, what do we do? Share all our problems. I got my list right here. Let's see, we need to pray for Aunt Emma. She's got this. And I'm not trying to make light of that. But I'm just saying, we need to get the right focus here. And we need to come to God with a thankful heart. When's the last time you were in a prayer meeting and you heard somebody say, You know what? God, I thank you that Aunt Emma's having difficulties right now physically. When have you heard that? See, we need to change our thinking. Because God's in control. Sometimes maybe God has people going through physical problems because He's trying to get their attention. And they're not listening. So He's cranking up the, the heat a little bit. Romans 8.28 says that God orchestrates all these things all things, all, not all things are good, but He orchestrates all these things for His good. For my good and His glory. You know, when you have a problem, God knows what the problem is. And God's perfectly capable to deal with it, no matter what it is. I mean, I'm thankful that, you know, I don't serve a God that just leaves this up in the air. 
Well, you know, I forgave all your sins back there, but, you know, you've got to get from here to glory on your own, pal. I never make it. I wouldn't make it out of this building. I mean, let's just be honest. None of us would. We're sinners saved by grace. And we need to get the right thinking here. We need to stop and we need to thank God that He knows our problems, that He can deal with the problems. We need to thank God for His power and His knowledge and all that He promises will come to true, come to fruition. All three of those words, by the way, refer to a specific direct request, prayer, supplication, request. They're all the same. They all assume that in difficulty you go to God. That's just the bottom line. But the issue is you go to God with a thankful heart even though you're in the midst of difficulty. When you can sit back and you can trust that God is in control of everything in your life, and you understand that God is a God that's more powerful than any circumstances you find yourself in, and that somehow He's going to rot out His will in your life, and in the lives of your family, or whatever, Tell you why, you sleep a lot better at night. You just do. When you understand that the Bible says that our God supplies all of our needs. If you understand that God knows everything in your life and He cares about it. If you understand that God has power for every difficulty that's available to you. If you understand that God is perfecting you to be like Christ, He's doing it, not you. He's doing it in you. If you understand that nothing escapes God and nothing is outside of His tolerance and His purposes, then why would we fear? Why would we be anxious about anything? It's all in His plan. It's all in His purpose. I mean, we need a healthy dose of spiritual reality here. What's the result of a thankful heart? Well, look at verse 7. We'll close with this. Back in Philippians 4, verse 7. You have a thankful heart when you understand the sovereign God of the universe and He's on your side. What? And the peace of who? God will surpass, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ. You're looking for tranquility, you're looking for contentment in that rat race you find out there of life. Some inner calm in the midst of the craziness around you. Well, look at what it promises in verse 7. In the middle of difficulty, when you're pleading and you're supplicating and you're praying to God and you have a thankful heart. You know what? The answer to the prayer is not the issue. You understand that? The answer to your little prayer is not the issue. That's not the point. It doesn't say that if you pray and you, you supplicate and you, your request be made known to God with thanksgiving, they don't answer your prayer and give you anything you want. It doesn't say that. But that's how we think. It says nothing about an answer. It says whatever the answer may be and whatever the answer will come, God will give you what? God will give you peace, right? That's the issue. It's not the answer to the prayer. Peace is the issue. Well, what is the peace of God? 
Well, it's the peace that God possesses and He gives to us through Christ. It's an inward peace. It's a God-like peace in us. That's what, that's what gives us that calm. It's a gift from God to the one who prays thankfully. As you exist, as I exist in an environment of love and peace, and we're a peacemaker, and we focus on our relationship to the living Christ, and as we have a humble heart, we're not demanding things, our rights or whatever it may be, and you, we begin to understand our sovereign God, and we understand God, and we trust Him. In the midst of grave, difficult circumstances, when we're pouring our hearts out to God, and we're doing it with thanksgiving. God says, you know what? I'll respond to you with peace. I'll dispense peace to you. That's the promise. He grants you peace. Listen to Isaiah 26.3. It says, the steadfast of mind thou wilt keep in what? Perfect peace. Because he trusts in thee. What are you trusting in this morning? Are you trusting yourself? You're not going to have much peace. You're not going to have much calm. You're not going to have much of anything, to be honest with you. But when you trust in God, you get a steadfast mind. God keeps you in peace. And you know what? That's how to face life with stability. There's so much wrong advice. There's so much trust in man's ability. And there's so much distrust in God's sovereignty that we really have, have sent people down the wrong path. And I don't care what the problem is you're facing, it doesn't make any difference. Anxiety, psychosis, neurosis, whatever you want to call it, I don't care. I want you to understand that, you know what? You need to understand who God is. And that God is beyond that problem. He, he's more powerful than that problem. We can take every issue of life with a thankful heart and as we pray and we ask Him for deliverance in the midst of it all, it's the promise of the Word of God that He will give you peace. And that peace there in verse 7, it says, you know what, you, you can't even understand it. <laughs> it's beyond your comprehension. That's the kind of peace we're talking about. It's not rational. It transcends your own intellect. It transcends analysis. It transcends man's insights. It transcends man's understanding. You can't even define it. You can't explain it. It's not human. It's sent by God Himself. And you know what? You don't go to man for that kind of peace. You go to God. So many times, you know, you hear people coming counseling, and, oh, we've got to go to a counselor. You know, go to God. Go to God. Share your problem with God. Don't you think that He's perfectly capable of fixing whatever the problem is? Put your trust in Him. There's no counselor in the world that can give you that kind of peace that He promises. There's no therapy in the world that can give you that kind of peace. There's no technique. It's the gift of God to a believer who so confidently understands and trusts in his God that he's thankful, even in the midst of a trial. And out of that thanksgiving, out of that thanksgiving, God responds by granting him this supernatural, beyond understanding, incomprehensible peace. 
And you know what? The world's offering a lot of cheap substitutes for that today. We need to stop and we need to go back to the God of the Bible and say, God, you know what? This is what your word says. Do I believe it? Do I believe it? People are trying to create perfect peace all over the place. They don't like the way they look. They don't like the way they're shaped. They don't like the way their mother treated them. They don't like the way their father treated them. They were abused. They were misunderstood. They were treated poor, properly, improperly. They don't like the way their husband treats them. They don't like the way their wife treats them. They don't like the way their kids are turning out. They don't like the place they live. They hate their job. And all these things just kind of build up inside us. And then you wonder why people are a little anxious on the freeways. Hello? You know, sooner or later we learn that we're all fallen people. We're all living a fallen world. That's the way it's going to be. And the great reality is that our glorious sovereign God has overruled all of that. John 16, Leave you with this. In this world, you shall have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I mean, I hope you can say amen to that this morning. Because when, when, we, when we are going to start living the supernatural life on a supernatural plane and, and accept that, you know what, yeah, we do live in a fallen world and that's the way it's going to be, but we serve a God who's overcome all that. And He's given us the ability to have peace in the midst of all that. Then you'll truly understand the God that you serve. And that, that peace that He grants us will, will just, it says there, it will guard your hearts. Guard you from what? Anxiety, from doubt, from fear, from distress. It's a military term. It literally means to keep guard over or protect. That's the result of it. If we're going to trust in somebody, let's trust in God. Let's not trust in ourselves. Amen? Father, let's, let's, let's just pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we thank you for this letter of the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church. And Lord, we ask this morning that no matter what we're facing in life, Father, that we would come to you first and foremost. Lord, maybe it's problems in our own personal life. Maybe it's problems in our marriage. Maybe it's problems in our family with our kids. Maybe it's physical problems. Maybe it's emotional problems. Maybe it's spiritual problems, mental problems, whatever it might be. Lord, you're perfectly capable of embracing us and giving us that peace that we can't even begin to understand through all that when we come to you in prayer. Not to get an answer, but to come to you with a thankful heart knowing that we serve a God who's over all and victorious over all and in control of all, and yet He lives within us. What a wonderful truth. Lord, I pray this morning, if there's anybody here this morning that has yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, Lord, that, that invitation is there by You. Lord, you won't disappoint someone who cries out to you with a, with, a, with a heart that desires to be changed, a heart that's tired of running its own way, its own direction, a heart that's weary of just looking for calm and tranquility in this world because they're not going to find it.
They will find it at the foot of the cross. They're willing to humble themselves. They're willing to turn away from their sin and turn to a God who loves them. Turn to Jesus Christ who died on the cross for them. I pray that you would do that work in their heart, that you would transform their heart, that you would give them that desire to not run after their sin anymore, but to run after you so that they could find that peace, that forgiveness, and that grace, that mercy and love that waits for them there. For us believers, help us never to forget that we're all fallen beings. None of us are, are any more than that. We're all vile sinners saved by your grace. And even though we're saved, we sin every day. But Lord, it's your grace that keeps us. It's your mercy. And in that we rejoice. In that we can have peace. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.